This podcast is supported by our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned, responsible bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in, and the planet we all live on. Hi there, I'm Jane Nethercote, digital editor at Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat to inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. And just a heads up before we start, this podcast discusses sexual assault, and so it could be traumatic for some. Just over a year ago, Dumbo Feather editor and publisher Barry Liberman interviewed the extraordinary, by which we mean Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker Amy Ziering at the Dumbo Feather offices. That was for a profile that appeared in Dumbo Feather issue 44. And now we want to bring that moving and important chat to you. Amy has become a fierce and powerful champion for thousands of women around the world. She and longtime collaborator Kirby Dick made The Invisible War, a groundbreaking documentary investigating the epidemic of rape in the American military. More recently, she turned her attention to university campuses with The Hunting Ground, a film that told a similarly harrowing story of a deeply disturbing culture of rape. It's made an astonishing impact in the US, where it was shortlisted for an Academy Award and started an important conversation in universities across the world. We're enormously thankful at Dumbo Feather for people like Amy, activist storytellers who have the courage to take on enormous institutions and have the conversations many would rather ignore. She was brought to Australia by our great friends at Good Pitch, an organisation that helps amplify the power of documentary films. Please do take the time to check them out. And by the way, just to let you know, this podcast is a bit different from our others. It wasn't recorded in front of an audience. Instead, it's a dip into our archives. So if you hear some movement or doors or the sound of tinkling lights, uh, that's just our office at play. Amy, I'm going to give a, a, a brief kind of bio of what you do and then you can correct me if I'm wrong or add anything. But... You're one of the most powerful documentary filmmakers on the planet at the moment, telling stories that are incredibly harrowing and challenging, stories that are really in the dark, icky, cobwebby corners of our world. Um, your recent work has themes of power and the abuse of power. The Invisible War was the sort of seminal work, a very famous work that had a huge impact on the military. It spoke of very clearly rape in the military um, and that it was endemic and a huge problem and had been going on for a very long time. And the, your recent film is called The Hunting Ground, which I, just the title itself gives me chills. Um, it's a very brave title, let alone the content. And they're telling similar stories of women not only being failed by a system that should protect them, but they are also being punished. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something I really want to talk about, that phenomenon, that social phenomenon. Why is the victim punished and blamed um, for surviving? <laughs> and they, the films push for a specific change to be made and for accountability, protection of the survivors and the rightful persecution of the attackers. This is heavy stuff. So I guess my first question of my 7,000 questions is what makes you want to 
or have the courage to tackle these issues? I don't know. I, you know, I actually don't reflect. I just do, and it, it isn't that something makes me want to. It just seems like it just seems like why doesn't why doesn't everybody want to? Honestly, I'd ask that question back at you. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I could do anything differently. And courage absolutely does not. It doesn't enter the spectrum. Uh, honestly, and I'm not being disingenuous or humble. It, it was funny in Making Invisible War, people were saying, you're so brave, and it just didn't even occur to me. It's a little more, um, now with Hunting Ground and taking on, like, you know, uh, it's ironic taking on institutions like uh, colleges and universities in America is actually more um, difficult than taking on the Pentagon, if you can believe that. But um, in, in that way, I don't feel more courageous, but I am sort of more in the, in the, in the crossfire right now of, of the kind of, you know, the culture war around this issue, which is, again, as you said, mind-blowing. How you can, how when you come and report a violent crime out of only goodwill and trying to be a citizen to protect others from experiencing the crime and how then you yourself become, you know, ostracized, blamed, and, and vilified in a way that's absolutely incomprehensible, you know, is something, you know, we deal with daily with survivors that speak up about being assaulted on campuses. Can we pull that apart for a moment? Or is this just like the big black hole of human behavior? How is this happening? Why does this happen? I wish I knew. I mean, the thing that's so staggering, and I, I often say, is that what's odd about this crime is it's statistically correlative to any other crime in our society in that the rates of false reporting are identical, meaning that 2 to 8% of reports are rape or false, just like any other crime in our society, at least in America. Um, which means that 92 to 98% of reports are true. Um, and yet, with any other crime, you do not find when someone comes forward and reports it that someone says, oh, are you sure you didn't give them the TV? Uh, what were you wearing when they took your TV? You know, why were you, were you drunk when you say he robbed you? Um, and yet, those are the absolute first line immediate questions of anyone who comes forward and reports rape. And yet, it's as unlikely that you're making this up as it is that you're making up any other crime in our, in our American society. Hmm. So you help me unpack it. I mean, I wish I had the, I don't know. I mean, obviously, um, there's something very deep about the desire to not believe this is a crime that is happening. Um, you know, uh, uh, it's too horrible maybe for people to admit or, or want to believe because then you yourself feel vulnerable to it. Hmm. Um, it does have to do, obviously, do with socioeconomic factors. If we look at who the perpetrators are and who the victims are, and what's in, what society likes to protect, um, you know, patriarchal institutions. <laughs> uh, more often than not, the, the perpetrators are people in positions of power, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, but why we all then collude with them instead of with, you know, the rightful victims is your guess. Honestly, your guess is as good as mine. What we haven't talked about is the profound impact that the Invisible War had on policy. 35 new laws have come into play as a result of you having the chutzpah <laughs> to get the film into the hands of the people that needed to see it. Because you were told at a screening there are seven people that need to really see this film for any real change to happen. And I think that's true of quite a lot of major social issues. You can have a groundswell of kind of momentum underneath something like gay marriage, which is obviously a, a huge global issue. But to get it into the hands of the people that need to see it is a really fundamental right. part of change, right. which you understood. And I love the story that you were telling today of how you had one DVD of The Invisible War and you weren't letting it out of your hands and you 
this is cool. I think this is incredibly cool. So all filmmakers or change makers out there, listen to this. This is a tip from one of the greats. Um, you uh, sent out an email list. Like, so every screening you went to, you got people to put their emails down and said, if you want to hear from us, give us your email. And then you sent out an email to everyone. And what did that email say? I sent out an email that said, these are the five guys that are running our military. If you know them, if, you, if your kids play basketball with them, if you went to school with their wives, get in touch with me. I have a favor to ask. Can we just pause on that for a moment? Yes. That's amazing. Oh. People don't even register that you could ask a really focused question and ask of the people on that email list, hey, if you know anyone who knows anyone who knows anyone who can right. get this film into the hands of like right. one of the five people that need to see it, give us a hoy, as they right. say in Australia. Right. That's an amazing little piece of advice because that's reaching out to community in a very simple, very grassroots right. way with authenticity and honesty and just saying like, we need this. This is a really major piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, yeah, and just to, to, to st go back for one second, it is part of a, just for those trying to plan impact campaigns, it is really important to have this, what I call a grass tops and a grassroots strategy. So it is sort of figuring out, okay, you know, we definitely need the grassroots. We need public outrage. We need widespread awareness. We need culture change. Okay, we can all do that. You know, and, and all films, you know, do do that once you watch them. But how do we get that other element, the buy-in from the grass tops, people actually in direct power and influence who can really change this issue? And how do we get them to actually watch the film? Yes. Because too often those people are, you know, uh, at such a level where they'll, they won't really give you that, they won't be able to give you, I often get, got like Leon Panetta cannot give anyone 90 minutes, let alone a film, so good luck. You know, <laughs> Leon you know, Panetta is the Secretary was, of Was then the Secretary of Defense, Defense in America. And that was interesting, you know, and people who knew him, they're like, you know, which is, you know, just to know how these things work, you're, you know, that's a, that's a huge ask to get that kind of focus or drive. But, but, it's a, but so, so that was important for us and for anyone doing this kind of work or activist work with films is to figure out who those influencers are that you really actually need to physically make sure see it and not get, not have, and when you said I kept control of the DVD, it was so it wouldn't get handed off to gatekeepers, to publicists, to all the people they have working under them who are there to protect them from crazy filmmakers like me um, <laughs> from watching the bad news, you know, um, and because that would just obviously be sudden, you know, absolute, it would just kill it right there. So I did have the DVD after Sundance under lockdown, even though it was in high demand. You know, there was so much buzz from the festival and so much positive press and that everyone was calling me and saying, can I get a screener? And, you know, that's what you call the DVD at that point. It's just a screener. We didn't have any printed. And I said, you know, I really was ferociously guarded and said no, because I knew my only chance was to have that window where I was in possession of something that no one else could have. You know, if it was out on Amazon, the influencers would automatically just say, watch it, tell me what the talking points are, and, you know, and write her back a nice email. But now I had a hot property. Hmm. So that's what, that's what this generated... This is important, what you're talking about, because it also speaks to, I want to talk about chutzpah and mm. what it actually means, because Australians are often really nice about things, and it's a gorgeous quality and you're really nice and you're really sensitive and you're really feeling and thoughtful and obviously I can tell a kind person and a connector so it wasn't an aggressive thing it was that you had already you were already sitting on top of you knew that this film The Invisible War had <clears throat> a powerful impact on an audience and that it was in demand but you were holding the space for the magic Mm -hmm. And then saying, how do I direct this really purposefully at this really important juncture? Not aggressively pushing your way into these top five before 
you'd put it out in the world. This was a part of a, a pretty natural progression, but you had the foresight, I believe, to stop at that moment and just hold the space. Well, the chutzpah part is funny because it, it, was, it was not an easy thing. I mean, I remember Senator Boxer came up to me. Now, you don't know, Senator Boxer was like one of the most powerful women in the Senate, and she had come to Sundance, and she wanted a screener. So it takes chutzpah to say to know Senator Boxer, wow. especially when you know, like, you don't want to... You don't want to anger her and you want to be able to call a favor from her later, but to gently say, I'm just not releasing screeners right now, you know, because my fear, and then someone else came up to me and said, I'm, you know, I know you want to get her to Obama, I'm friends with Michelle, give me a screener, I'm jumping on a plane, and I was like, mm. you know, I, it, it just, and it wasn't a distrust thing, but the temptation would be then for them to show it to her chief of staff or something and for never, for Michelle not actually see it. And I just figured, I have this one time in the world to sort of actually try and control something and and if I fail I'll fail and then I'll hand out the DVDs happily but were let's you just scared try of failure at this point no it was just no, I wasn't I wasn't anything I was like this is what I need this is the only way I could conceivably get it I'm nobody I have no connections to any of these people but if I keep scarcity on my side you know uh, that's my only card that's my only trump card and then uh, someone called me and said um, uh, I got your email. My sister-in-law saw your film at Sundance. She said you're a nice lady. Um, I'm having lunch with the name withheld. She's married to someone extraordinarily high up in the military. Um, what you know? And what, what what's your ask? And I said, uh, I have one thing. I want I want to show her the film. And do you feel comfortable asking her that? And she said, Yeah, sure. She's a big girl. We're close friends. I'll ask her that. Um, uh, and uh, the next day she called me back and said, here's her phone number, and I ended up being able to screen it for her. Um, and uh, Kirby and I, you know, she said, sure, I'm happy to watch it. And, and uh, Kirby and I immediately booked a screening room in D.C., and we flew out and, and showed it to her, and she actually ended up showing up with her husband, this extremely um, wow. high-level military person. And so sort of weeks from Sundance, I sort of did did what for then for all of us, and I had been told was the impossible, was to get you know, um, someone in that kind of position of power to actually sit down and focus on our work. And, uh, and the impact was, it was really, it was a game changer, that moment. The rest was history, really, yeah, for that yeah, film, and yeah. then for the American public, because of the profound impact it's had. It's now used as a teaching tool in the US yes, military. Yes. And we can unpick this a thousand different ways, but I guess one of the things that it has taught the men in the military, let alone the women, so now the women feel empowered to speak, wherein yes. before they were silenced, um, but it also has empowered the men to understand as bystanders what to do. And the severity and the gravity of this problem, and that it's real and not to sort of just trust a fellow soldier's word that, you know, everything's under control or it's not what it seems, you know, which is really a different different perspective. I had a, I remember we did a screening, another grass top screening to try and um, affect change for 19 retired generals. And this was in DC a couple months after the film came out and a general came up to me and he said, I need to really go back and look at so many cases now. Like mm. what you've, well, watching this film made me think because uh, a modus operandi of the perpetrators is really to start a lot of white noise campaign around the victim so that 
you know, oh, she's a slut, oh, she came on to me and sort of, you know, and purposely parade the woman around with them drinking before when they're naive and think it's just a nice guy being their friend. So they really kind of set it up so they know how to cover it up. And this general was like really disturbed. He was really troubled. And he said, I just took this, you know, I, there's some cases I think I just was too quick to take someone's word for it and not understand the complexity and psychology of it, which is why it's such a danger to have people who are misinformed adjudicating these crimes. Mm you know, and having no really understanding of them. And that's why, as I also say, you know, when people say, why are you doing, a, you know, films on rape by the culture at large? Because in certain institutions, they provide perfect storm conditions for these, these kind of crimes to be committed over and over again and have nothing happen, you know, with impunity. Um, so, so talk to me a bit about why are these institutions so dangerous? Why, what is the perfect storm? So you have a target-rich environment with a lot of young women. Um, on campuses, they really are, some of them haven't had a lot of sexual experience, so yeah. they don't really even know what the social mores are. So if someone says to you, here, have a drink, here, have another, they don't know that, you know, they don't know they can say no. And then if he says, I mean, I heard this over and again, he said, come upstairs, and I thought, well, Maybe that's what people do, you know, just as yeah. a dating, like that's, maybe that's not, you know, they don't even know, like, the, na they're not, and the culture they're not worldly is, enough. Yeah, and the culture a, is experimentation, right, and, and I don't or, want to be viewed as yeah. being a hick from... Right, yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of that, that, that's what I mean about a target-rich environment with easy prey, which we even, when we, in the film, we interview a predator who affirms all this. Hmm. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, and then there's really no good mechanisms in place for any kind of fair adjudication, investigation and adjudication of these crimes, and B, the institutions like the military and the, and the campuses counterintuitively are incentivized to cover up these crimes rather than care about them. It's more cost effective, it's less time consuming, um, and so you would think as a student that your college would be actually be on your side. Well, it's not with these crimes, and that was, and same with the military, you know, it, a commander's bonuses are tied into sort of if there's less disruption in his unit. So it's much easier to sort of discharge a woman that he thinks is causing trouble than get rid of a prize soldier, you know, hmm. uh, or to, to report rape even going on in his unit. He can just say, you know, she had too many, she was too unstable because often after you're raped and assaulted repeatedly and no one's believing you, you you implode from PTSD and then it's easy to make the, the, the victim go away as opposed to really punish the perpetrator. And then in the military what would happen is, of course, a new victim would arrive and you'd see the cycle repeat and repeat and repeat. You don't um, come from that place of trauma, but you have immersed yourself in that um, narrative of trauma. These are really harrowing landscapes to enter and to hold the space for. How do you create as a storyteller, well, in any medium I would argue, but um, a safe space for someone to arrive and tell their authentic story? Well, the first thing I always do, and it's totally sincere and true, is sit them down and say, this isn't about me or us through the film. This is about you. And in no way, shape, or form do I want what goes on in this room to in any way harm you. So if at any time you want to stop the interview, if any time you want to leave, if you change your mind halfway, if you think about it later and don't feel comfortable with a certain question you know, being included in the film, I said, it's all about you, you know, and I really meant that sincerely, and, and, I, and this is, you know, I didn't use the language of safe space, but this is a space that I, I just, I hope in the end this is an empowering feeling for you, and if, you know, and it's, I know you've never done this before, so if it's not, it's all good, no harm, no foul, you leave, you don't sign a release, and, and we're, we're cool. 
And I think that really did help. You know, and I, it was genuine. I mean, yeah. there were interviews that we just left. And there were, you know... People um, pulled out late in the game, you People pulled out. And, you know, it was just never a thought or a question. And it's always about them first. And like, they've been through enough. I don't want to have... I don't want to do anything that increases their burden. And that's legit and sincere. It's actually, I'm not coming from a, I got to get this. You know, I don't need to get anything. Like, the film will live with or without you. You know, my life... You know, like... This should only, if there's any way I can have this be positive for you, that's the way I want it to go. So how have you personally sustained this kind of a journey into the heart of darkness in the work and also just the full-on stress of being a filmmaker? It's not easy. I, won't, I don't like to talk about it because I don't want to discourage anyone from doing this work. I, I use what, what I, you know, what, what was surprising was in sort of about Actually, fairly early on in the game, I started developing secondary PTSD and making Invisible War. Okay. And um, what was so interesting about that was you have like, and now I have such insight into that into PTSD is like you really have no, you you don't know, you know, it sneaks Just up on you. Just to break that apart, yeah. PTSD is post-traumatic stress, stress disorder. disorder. Right. Um, Could you just talk about that? What is the well? I, it's a inter it's a somewhat interesting story if we have the time and space. It's if a little you, as a little well, segue. Yeah. Kirby and I, uh, as I mentioned in the earlier talk, that, that we didn't have any funding for, in, for Invisible War for a very long time. So we just self-funded and we drove around the country, just the two of us, um, doing these interviews. And we naively, like you, booked three a day, <laughs> thinking no big deal, right? Again, <laughs> right? Month, oh, you know, this is like. the first movie. We'll do three trauma interviews a day, piece of cake. So on day three, um, we leave the house of Teresa, this woman in upstate New York, and, uh, you know, Kirby and I are also, we've worked together forever and like an old married couple. And we sit down in the car and he says, what do you think of the interview? And of course, like an old married couple, I know that that means I think you did a terrible job with the interview. <laughs> you know, like I could just, the way he asked, like he never asked me that. So I'm like, it was good. It was fine. What? You know? And he's like, he knows to be quiet. Like he's got to keep the interviewer happy and work with me. So it was like, end of story. So... We go driving on and, um, you know, I'm like, you know, really, whatever. So, and that, that, that night we go into that motel, we'd stay in a motel, it was a very thrifty shoot. And um, I start thinking, are my doors locked? I'm on the first floor. I mean, I so remember this. Oh shit. And I was like, wait, there, I'm on the first floor and there's a parking lot right there. And then just, and I grew up in a house where we didn't have keys. like. It was, for me, that's crazy. Like, really? Like, and looping. Like, I better go check I should lock the door. I better close this. Should I try and move to a different floor? And so the next morning, I remember coming, and I had trouble sleeping. And the next morning I came in, I looked at Kirby at breakfast. I said, I know what happened at that interview. I mean, I, you know, copped to it. I said, I thought about the Teresa interview. I shut down. I couldn't, I, I had to show up. I was professional. But I, I, I didn't want to hear it. You know what I mean? Like, so that's what he sensed. It was this different Amy interviewing, you know, portrait, you know, and I couldn't admit it or even understand it. But I said, and then I thought, I also think I'm like, I think it's starting to really get to me and I need to do something to take care of it. So I immediately called Tanner, who was our, our production coordinator. And I said, I need now, we need to upgrade from hotels. I need treadmills, you know, and, huh. uh, you know, and we only are doing two a day. So change the whole shoot schedule. Like tell the, you know, he had to call a million people and say, you know, we're not coming today. We're coming tomorrow. I said, because it's, you know, obviously, and I need to take breaks. And so we did all these, like, you know, little remedies and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the little remedies is where it's at. Totally. It totally helped. Yeah, it was a game, you know. Really so you shifted. understood yeah. you needed to exercise so that cardio, you could get the endorphins mm -hmm. running so that you 
would de-stress. be de-stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The body is the last to weep. Someone told me, and it just it had taken a you know it was starting to take a toll from doing the phone interviews first, and then going around the country doing these interviews. It was like you hit the wall. And they were interviews with women who had been raped yeah, in the yeah, military, yeah. just to clarify. But what I want to always add to that is it's not about me. And, and what is so instructive to me about this lesson of my own completely minute trauma compared to the real trauma of the people surviving these, these horrible, horrible violent acts is if it affects me as a witness in this way, like really, like imagine how it's affecting A, the survivors, B, their loved ones, all the people around them, and how it just weaves this web of illness in our whole society, which is why we're all in this together. It's so important. But actually, no one gets away from it. No one gets away from it. But I actually think there is a huge clue in what you're talking about to how we started this interview, which is why the hell are the victims blamed? And why is there so much blindness and cover up? I think because it is so hard to look into the heart of darkness that you had the self-awareness, the training to some degree, not enough as, as you're saying, because you walked into it and got hit by it. You had one night's sleep and woke up and said, shit, I need to gear up mm. to just hold the space for having these conversations. Mm. And you're like a super self-aware artist, storyteller. Mm. So imagine people who are told to shut down their feelings, men who are told not to feel, not to talk, not to communicate, to then have to engage with the heart of darkness. Women are being raped, women are being abused, children are, the violence against women in society is at an all-time high, and maybe it's because we're talking about it for the first time, or maybe it's at an all-time high and, and increasing. But if you have an incredibly inadequate psycho-emotional social norm, to face it is to really engage with the trauma and how do we do that as a human cohort and heal. I mean, you had the outlet of telling the story. Ultimately, you were like, I'm not doing this just for kicks. I'm actually going to frame this and put it in a film. But What I wanted to say, what's so important about what you're saying is that when you do listen, you help someone pass through their trauma so much more quickly if you listen with empathy. Um, it, what you're saying is so important. When people say, what's the one thing I can do? I'm overwhelmed by your phone. What's the one thing I can do? I said, just listen. Just listen and believe someone if they tell you this happened to them. Because what I found in the military and what I found on campuses was if, they, if the person is the first responder or the second responder, if the person survivor gets communal support instead of communal castigation, they are able to work through their trauma so much more quickly. And if the opposite happens, it, it exponentially multiplies what happens to them. And so, you know, that is so important for all of us. You know, like, again, that back to that statistic, the 92 to 98 percent, just believe survivors. Like, we will have a social change if that just happened. Like, you know, and maybe you'll be wrong in 2 percent of the cases. Let's take that risk and just imagine a world where that happens, you know. Um, uh, and it is really important. And, and that's why, you know, what we were pushing for in the military and what I always heard was, if someone, you know, and it's why also, and I don't, and I'm not an expert in this, I don't want to, there's no comparison of the trauma of civilian rape, but when I talked to civilian rape survivors and they said, you know, I was okay because I actually, you know, I didn't get justice, but people, my family believed me, I was supported, you know, I could get, you know, I could get through it. It didn't, it wasn't sort of a, a life-stopping event where the PTSD was, you know, ad infinitum, it, for in many cases. And I did not find that in these other populations where it was the, it was the double betrayal, as you said, that made it so hard. 
it makes it so psychologically hard to get through it in a healthy way. I think that also guilt and shame in community at not being able to have these conversations sort of further pushes it underground. Don't talk to me, I can't talk about this, therefore it didn't happen and you're just making shit up. Well, something I didn't say in the earlier session, but I, it's an interesting thing to say here because you're trying to unpack where does this all come from. I think in what you're talking about guilt and shame, you know, at least in America, we're not, we're, we're, we're schizophrenic, right? Everything's about sex and all the advertising about sex, but God forbid you should actually really talk about sex. You know, and that's what's messaged out daily. You can't, you know, actually have an honest conversation about your own personal sexual activities, but it's all out there that that's all you should want and look for and push for and dress for and all that. And so um, I, I interviewed a prosecutor who uh, she had the she 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 had worked for 20 years and, and a lot of her the, her, her rape on, on rape cases was her, one of her specialties. But she had to defend prostitutes who were accusing you know their Johns of rape or their pimps of rape. You know she was like banging her head against the wall. No one you know she'd never get convictions. The juries were always like, well they're a prostitute. What do you expect? Or like how do we know? Or like we can't trust them. They're like using sex. They're, selling their bodies for money, et cetera, et cetera. So she, she, she took one tack. She said one day she had a light bulb go off. She sat everyone in the room and she said, okay, all of you jurors, you all don't know each other. Everybody think of your most positive recent sexual experience. Got it? Like best sex you've just had. All right, one of you volunteer and stand up and tell us about it. Anyone? You know, and, and once you tell us about your amazing sex, I want, I'm going to ask you a whole series of questions about it in graphic detail. And we're going to all listen. And she said, you know, she said, okay, now, if none of you want to do that, why do you think my client wants to stand up in a room of strangers and talk in graphic detail over and over again about one of the worst moments in her life? Like, why would she do that? Like, what is it, you know, so it's interesting. So it is this sort of also sex shame around conversations about sex or not wanting to hear it and also not wanting to admit to, you know. And not knowing, wanting, not knowing what to do when you do hear it. Right. And what you're saying is just listen. Yeah, and, and then and believe empathically. Believe. Listen empathically. Don't challenge. You know, hold that space as you were saying. Be a container for it. This opens up a whole another interesting conversation, which we can talk about another time, which is about being uncomfortable, because being uncomfortable is actually okay mm -hmm. if it's in service of healing and mm -hmm. listening. Mm -hmm. In a non-hippie way, I really, you know, think mm -hmm. we don't talk enough about just being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, have you felt threatened making, telling these stories and putting them out in the world? Uh, I have not. I have the good fortune of being too old to be on social media. Was there anything else in framing the story that you were confronted by in yourself? No, I, I don't think so. Um, uh, Someone asked me this, though, in a slightly different way. They were like, why? And I do think that, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not an accident what, what, you, what, what, what I, I've always been interested in social justice, but, and I've always been interested in feminism. And so uh, that makes sense to me. But sort of I've also had a thread of really sort of academic interest in trauma. And, uh, and this came out at Sundance in an interview, which I'd never actually put it together before because I don't, you know, I, I like to be behind the lens and I, I hear other people's stories. And but um, they said, why, why trauma? And it kind of a bulb went off again. Talk about repression and denial and non-reflection. But you know, I remember my dad was actually a Holocaust survivor, so I'm a, I'm a daughter of a survivor. Um, may he rest in peace. He's no longer alive. 
And uh, he always, not always, I mean, he talked about it extremely rarely. We had the gift of a blissful ignorance. But he did, in the very few conversations I had with him, he talked about the ways in which when he got out of the camps and he tried to talk to people, they didn't believe him and they didn't want to hear it. And he just shut down. And I could see that, you know, like growing up. I mean, he's really shut down emotionally. And he just decided, okay, that's a story that no one else can handle and I can't get support with. So, it, you know, that's just a part of my life I'm going to just not deal with. So I think part of my desire to always champion, you know, or help someone else through their trauma is from my own unprocessed, you know, desire to make things better for him. I think that's pretty constructive from a pretty, um, going to make me cry, <laughs> from a pretty um, damaged place. But I think that it's a gift to all of us that you do that. And it's because it's so hard even now in a professional environment. You can't not just be human beings and platforming the stories that we need to hear, even if it's really, really, really uncomfortable because we don't move forward if we don't tell these stories. And I guess a final question um, is about the story itself because you guys are gifted storytellers and I know how hard it is to tell a good story. Mm -hmm. So just on a lighter framing, what uh -huh. makes a good story? Uh, just classic movie making. We really do follow a three arc, a three act. We follow a narrative arc and a three act structure, you know, um, setting it up. So with actually Invisible War with uh, Corey, we had the suspense as to, that was our, our lead. We had several subjects. We had one lead story and it was like, will she get VA benefits? Like and you were watching sort of, that was the narrative arc of, of her struggle. And we also also followed, at the same time we followed a lawyer who was trying to press a lawsuit. So. Um, you know, it was this, you know, so you, you build your protagonist and then everyone's behind them and wants them to succeed and then, you know, epic fail really motivates people to be sort of distraught and, and then want to help. And that worked with Invisible War and with, um, with Hunting Ground, it was a slightly different structure. We, we showed these stories, horrific stories, and sort of played them through their narrative, first, second, and third acts. But then the, the real thread was following this incredible student movement and these badass activists like nobody's business that no one's ever seen before. And, and capturing a student movement in real time, like what I love about our film is a lot of documentaries capture movements, but it's always in retrospect and, you know, archival footage. And we were on the ground, you know, as this like, incredible thing was happening that hasn't happened since the 70s yeah. and, 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 and exponentially goes beyond what happened in the 70s thanks to social media, not thanks to people try, not being as good or trying. Um, you know, just being able to social media by saying being able for people to network and organize in ways that never had happened before. So that was super exciting. So we have this amazing arc of, you know, of these activists that we follow really from start to finish. And that, that, that was our storytelling technique there. And then the other thing that we did was that um, we always try and have a multiplicity of voices echo and amplify what the major voices or major storylines are saying so that you get a sense of, especially with the issues we were dealing with, of not only it just happening to these few people, but it being you know systemic and widespread, and sort of the ubiquity and sort of awful commonplaceness of this horror, and we did that you know by having these multiple Greek what we call Greek choruses of, of different survivors echoing and amplifying what the main story characters were saying. So traditional frameworks are <clears throat> incredibly useful when the story speaks for itself mm -hmm. in a way. So you become mm -hmm. master crafts people at the 
framework of storytelling that we know works mm -hmm. and you're platforming the meaningful content so exactly and we steal the tropes from you know from pop culture and from from fiction right we like to have a really strong villain you know because people like to have a place to focus their energy otherwise we find with activist films it gets very diffuse and people don't really know oh well I'm upset but I, I don't know what to do you know? um, so you know that sort of we, we steal that page from from narrative films it's not my last question I have one more um, and I guess it's uh, do you have faith for humanity is is there change oh God, happening is that on my shoulders no not on your shoulders more, <laughs> more like I get asked the same questions about no we, no I mean seeing I, change are if we, I say no um, I wish I did you know I'm a I'm a pessimistic optimist um, <laughs> I guess you know you've seen real change I think though I have um, but you know, uh, yeah, we got a long way to go. And maybe it's the fact that I'm a pessimistic optimist that keeps me going, right? If I thought there was... Well, there's always another mountain to climb. Right, right, right. But I guess my question without making it so broad is that the, of the change you have seen, has it given you hope? Yes. Oh my God. Yes, that I will say, yeah, unequivocally. Look, and this is the beauty and the brilliance of like, and the gift that I'm, I'm lucky enough to do what I do is that you make a film, it moves people, and then they are moved to do something yeah. unbelievable. But that's also the key, because people even come up to me and they're like, how do I create change? I'm so overwhelmed by all the stuff that's going on in the world. But what we're saying here is be the person that responds to the story or, or responds to whatever it is that's going on in the world and and act on it make something happen because it is the web of all of us um, that is moving the dial towards a, a hopeful future when um, it could go either way really right. it just depends who's sitting at the table i reckon so thank you so much thank you thank you you can find out more about The Hunting Ground at thehuntinggroundfilm.com or if you're in Australia, there is a dedicated website at thehuntinggroundaustralia.com.au which has details on where you can find the film. For now, it's also up on Netflix. If you or someone you know has experienced sexual abuse, we've listed some online resources in our podcast notes for where you can find help. Thanks so much for joining us for the Dumbo Feather podcast. This episode was produced by Beck Fari and me, Jane Nethercote, and coordinated by Serena Ashmore. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation, or you can hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. We'd absolutely love it if you could let us know your thoughts by reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help us to find more listeners. Or you can send us an email with suggestions to hello at dumbofeather.com. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast was supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests in conservation projects and will never invest customers' money in fossil fuels. Where you bank every day makes a difference.